Welcome everybody to Dojo Talks. Uh, this is our third episode talking about the best games uh, of history. We've split it into three fairly large periods. I'm not sure if the two of you realized when we set out to do this how large these periods were going to be, but we have an incredible number of games that, that we're covering. Today's episode is post Fisher Spassky, so 1973 to the present day. Um, we'll each give our 10 best uh, or favorite <laughs> games of the period, and uh, we'll each let you in a little bit on uh, how we picked those along the way. Um, what can I tell you? If you didn't see the first two episodes, I would go back and listen to or watch those two first. And then another thing to recognize is that among all episodes of our podcast, this episode is the hardest to follow without the video, which is available on YouTube. So you may want to watch this one on YouTube rather than listening to it on the go because we will be showing the games that we're talking about. Now, if you have an encyclopedic memory of all the chess games you've seen, like Magnus Carlsen has, um, then you may just be able to follow along uh, without it. You know, if you're if you're a strong master or just a, or just an encyclopedia yourself, you may just be able to say, oh, yeah, you know, short Timon, I remember that game. He was controlling D7, blah, blah, blah. So um, up to you. But you've been warned that um, we will be showing games on today's episode. And also, I mean, I say warned, but that's kind of the greatest thing about these episodes. I think a lot of people on the first couple episodes have been introduced to games that they were not familiar with before. You know, here and there, we have a couple games that are not maybe as popular or that have not been seen as many times. And so um, these are these are treasures. Hey, even even I, Kostya, introduced me to a treasure last week. Jesse or Kostya, have either of you seen a game in the first two episodes that you hadn't seen before? Have have one of the other two senseis linked you to a game that you didn't remember seeing oh definitely yeah there's a few games the one that sticks out is the the home of bronstein game you shared last week mm. uh like i had seen that game before but i hadn't like seen it like i hadn't like okay. looked at it you know slowly <laughs> i was like wow was yeah, sick game um, yeah well we still haven't looked at it slowly we we blitzed through the thing but that's that's the nature of looking at you know 30 classics in an hour and a half Jesse, have you have you encountered any new games over? Um, I guess this exercise not necessarily new, but definitely like memories and new experiences of the same game. Uh, like I've obviously I've seen the Botvinnik Alakine game a bunch of times, but I like I liked our appreciation of that game. I think also uh, we had I it was very interesting to like relook at the Fisher Spassky match because you said something interesting, which was that that for that match like no one at the time got it because there's so many different games so many new ideas and i think for most of my young adult life when i was studying fisher those games were inapproachable in a lot of ways to me mm -hmm. yeah yeah really challenging games um okay well let's let's get into it then um and uh Actually, maybe I'll say one more thing before we start. The number of good games that we are each leaving off our list is immense. I think I speak for all three of us when I say that. I'm pretty safe to assume you two will agree with me that there are 
just incredible games that didn't get into your top 10 and you probably looked at 20 or 30 games and wondered how you could cram them in and why you couldn't um i i was playing through this um this game caruana carlson from 2015 wake on zay and this is just a stupendous game and a great example of the kind of game i couldn't fit in here do you guys know this game here's the here's the setting this is just because people get so mad at the games we leave out right i just want to give a nod to all the games we leave out so the setting is Caruana had just torched Sinkfield Cup, right? And his rating was getting really close to Magnus's. And, um, you know, and he'd beaten Magnus personally. And at Wake on Zay, Magnus sort of reestablishes that he's still number one. And he wins this game on the black side of the Bishop B5 Sicilians. Do you guys know the game? I think I've seen it, yeah. He goes for kingside counterplay while Caruana plays a3 b4 breaks the c5 square which is kind of a typical target in those bishop takes c6 positions and uh the manner in which magnus sort of he can't defend the queen side but he defends it enough to make it just take the right amount of extra effort from Caruana, and then you know and then it starts to fall apart and he's just launching his counter attack and Caruana's got enough counterplay to get the queen trade and magnus keeps going with the kingside initiative in the end game i mean this game like i looked at it, it's like how is this not one of the greatest most important games in history and yet i couldn't fit it in so um so i just want to say that that there's unbelievably good games not on this list and it's not solely because we're bums or bozos or something like that it's just there was too much and All right, with boss, that, what's your number 10 with that you want me to start yeah that's what we said boss all right number 10 for me um is uh gashimov grishuk um this is in. a put it in Poison Pawn Nightorf. Okay, let me type it in here. Yashimov. Whoops. Right, and while he's doing it, we're just going to say, uh, because we want to take a look at the last uh, top five picks, and there's gonna we're going to have wide divergence there. We're not going to talk at length about uh, our 10 through 6 picks. Yeah. Okay. So I can't say much about it if people can't see it, right? But... What I'll say about this game is chess history has several famous games where somebody's king gets chased around in circles and then checkmated, right? In Wait, some Dave, horrible no, no, we can't show this fashion. game, boss. Can't show it. We don't have time. So chess history is littered with games where a king gets chased around the board and <laughs> hunted down and checkmated. And uh, what's really special to me about this game is it's a game where the king got chased and hunted around the board and didn't get checkmated. And I see this as kind of a flip companion game to a very famous Kasparov Topolov game where the kings end up facing each other on B1 and D1 as well. <laughs> and in that game, the black king gets checkmated. And in this game, the black king escapes. And uh, again, it may be because I have poorer defensive skills or whatever, but I wanted to... Uh, give some respect and honor and love to uh, a successful defense. So this is a mind boggling game in which the uh, the defender or the escaper uh, comes out on top. 
Uh, and that's my number 10. Cool. Um, Jesse, I, I did play through the game just very briefly as David. Oh, he knows it. Was... He's stewing in what you've just done. <laughs> uh, it was very fast. All right, we're not, we're not showing you. We're just very briefly. You know, it's going to take two minutes to describe the game anyway. I might as well just like play through it for the... Anyway, that's number um, 10. Jesse, you go next. You're number 10, please. Yeah, and we kind of screw... We're going to have to revert to the old snake thing because... Uh, <laughs> because like, I don't know. If, do I do two now? Or I, I guess I have to do two. So um, no, 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 I haven't even done my ten yet. You can't give your nine. I'll do two, and okay, then you do, and then you do your nine, and then David will do nine and eight. So um, let me just say a, a little bit. This was the most difficult by far of all these, uh, of all of the shows we've done about best games, and I think there's two main reasons for my perspective why it's difficult. Chess games, in valuing them, especially as like the best of all time, it's a definitely like valuing art. And when we start talking about art with, with the best of all time, whether it's literature or whatever, it takes a certain amount of time before you can kind of get a sense of the resonance of the game, both for yourself and for the broader community. And so my games, I have, it's very hard for me to rank recently played games in the same way of games that have been around for a while, right? And especially the last 10 years, very difficult to talk about games in the last 10 years. Second of all, uh, Carlson, <laughs> like we're kind of right now, it's not the last 10 years, last 15 years have been the Carlson era. And we're going to talk about it, but his games are both hard for me to put into the lens of the historical lens. And also there's something technical about the guy's style, which I very much admire, but doesn't lend itself to a top 10 list. The games are not Kasparov games, for example. There's a different quality for the from the fans' perspective. Okay, here it is. Number 10, I have Bagarov Gufeld, 1973, the Mona Lisa. This game is not only a great game, but it was just hilarious that this guy Gufeld would wander around the United States for years showing everybody this game. <laughs> he like self-promoted this game as the greatest game of all time. It was both hilarious, but there was an element of truth to it. It was a great, it is a great game. And um, it had a, it was like a self, one of those, like before the age of the internet, before social media, he memed his game. He memed his own game. So there it is, number 10, Bagarov Gufeld. Yeah, and Jesse, he kind of like spent the first half of his life wandering the world trying to play this game, right? And then once yeah. he'd achieved it, the second half wandering the world sharing it, right? That's right. I mean, so this is a chess player who was definitely an artist, right? And we're appreciating art here, and, and, this, is a, and this game is a work of art. Sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Gufeld, he's like... He's like a local legend in uh, Southern California because he used to play a lot of the opens there. And yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah definitely a classic, classic Kings Indian player. I remember, remember growing up learning about him. So yeah, great pick. Yeah. Okay, my turn? Your turn, buddy. All right. Um, okay, I will echo what you guys said um, this was a very, very difficult list to do. Um, I think for some of our last YouTube shows, you know, we're trying to rank um, the top 10 best games. And 
Um, if it was up to you know YouTube and all the comments we received on those shows, um, then we should have fit about 25 games into that top 10 list. <laughs> it's a tragedy that we don't have 20 games in our, in our top 10. So it's very hard, folks. It's very, very difficult. There have been so many brilliant players, so many brilliant games. Um, I'll say one thing about my criteria uh, criteria here. Obviously, this is all very, very subjective. Um, like Jesse, I had kind of a hard time ranking Carlson's games compared to everyone because while well, Carlson is just like an absolute chess genius, uh, his games don't exactly evoke like this insane um, response like some of the you know more famous games on our list uh, might. Um, also, I suffer from like a re reverse recency bias. I'm like very concerned about having a recency bias that I'm like actively acting against it. Um, so for instance, one game that is not on my list was very close. It was the Carlson Nepo game six from the World Championship 2021. And if you had asked me to rank that game like the day after, I would have said, oh, greatest game of all time. No question, <laughs> what a masterpiece. And I think that game might show up on a top 10 list in the future because I think it was pretty epic, but I just feel like there hasn't been enough time for history to like kind of play out a bit to really see um, how that game will uh, survive the, the test of time. Um, for me, a lot of these games have been around for a while. They're well known at the time. They're still well known. They made an impression. They became like a cult classic. And I think that Carlson Epo game will one day be like kind of this uh, like fond memory for everyone. But yeah, again, it was just super hard. And I would just like to apologize everyone for not choosing no. um, the right games <laughs> for the list. I, I don't know if that game is going to come up from Jesse, but I mean, I'll mention I'll, I'll mention something too, Kosti, because I had some of the very same thoughts as you. When I first did my list, I put that game at like fifth, and then I was like playing through all these artistic games, and I dropped it to sixth and to seventh, you know. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm just biased from like how epic it was, you know, that we watched it live together you know, on the channel, it was so intense, you know, and I really love long games. Maybe it's recency bias because I just experienced it. Um, and eventually it dropped out of my top 10. So it's not on my list either for very similar reasons. And I don't know if it should be or not. Okay. So, so there you have it. All right. My 10th pick is the game Karpov Topalov. Uh, from Linares, 1994. Mm. And uh, this, there's actually, um, there's another Karpov Topalov game that's very famous, I think also from 1994 with this like fantastic combination where Karpov goes like Knight of Six, I think is like this insane move. This is not the game I'm talking about. Um, this game is known as Karpov's Immortal and um, just briefly, very, very briefly go through the game for everyone. Uh, the cool thing about this game is that uh, Karpov, of course, plays his trademark positional style, you know, English opening, um, but then ends up first with this, uh, playing this cool knight c5 move, and then he sacrifices the rook on e6, ends up sacrificing it on g6, um, definitely shades of that like Botvinnik Portish game with with the, the fancy rook sack and playing on the light squares. Yep. And then um, and then he ends up sacrificing uh, the exchange here, and then the second exchange sacrifice with the rook takes d4, leaving the way he just runs straight for that bishop on d4. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's like, I'm coming to take it. It can't get away. 
Right. Rig d1, pre-move, rig takes d4. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then he wins with the queen and, and bishop knight against the uh, the, the lone king and, and heavy pieces. Um, so, yeah. Uh, extremely well well played game. Definitely one of one of Carpo's best, in, in my opinion. Um, okay. Number nine. So, that game there, it was my number 11. It was also on my list for a while and got bumped down. One thing I want to say about that game is I feel like in that game, Karpov also like killed 20 people in the 2000s because he taught Topolov Topolov's trademark. Topolov's mm. trademark is the double exchange sack, right? <laughs> That's, That's what he's famous for. And I looked at a bunch of Topolov's best games and I was like, damn, damn, damn. And then I looked at the Karpov game and I was like, oh, Karpov just taught him this thing. <laughs> and then he was just like, and then he was just like, oh, <laughs> Well, you rocked me, but but now I know what to do. That's so funny. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. Uh, okay, I'm going to keep moving right along here. Very, very quick. Um, my number nine game is a more recent game. I thought this game was amazing when it was first played, uh, and it was played in a very important candidates tournament in 2018. Uh, and this is the game Aronian Kramnik was round three of that tournament um super super cool game this is the famous rook g8 game where kramnik uh basically had this incredibly uh devious little plan from the opening prepped and um in addition to of course like the super Super cool opening boss, idea. Boss, boss, we can't show it, man. We don't have time. I'm not showing it. I'm not. I'm just playing. You are showing. You are showing. You are showing it. Anyway, this is gonna happen on YouTube later. If I don't do it now, we're just giving more work for Braden to have to show the game later. No, the, no um, Braden's not gonna show it either. We're walking through this. We're walking, and we'll have a little time to go through the top five, my friend. Walking through this. All, All right, right well, Dave, what do you got for anyway, number Anyway, it was a great attacking game. You're right, Jesse. We do have to actually kind of hurry up. But uh, yeah, amazing attacking game. I'll finish here. Uh, oh my that's God. my number nine. All right, let's keep going. Keep going. All right, Dave, what do you okay. got? Now, Kostya, it's Jesse's turn, right? No, oh, it's yeah. your turn. And I'm going to go twice. It's your turn, Jesse. You wanted to change who was in the middle. Okay, fine. Okay, so number nine... We're not going to show this game. It right, might come up later in the games. list. That's it. Uh, this is Aronian Anand, 2013. I suspect they will. one of them will put it up later. Um, just briefly, Anand was the master of the semi-slav early in his career, and it just continued. It, so like a pre-computer opening, evolving then into 2013 into a very computer opening. And that game, classic classic counterattack. And I'll just leave it there because I'm going to suspect strongly that um, that somebody else has got it. It's a great game, right? It's similar to the Rubenstein game that we yeah. talked about two shows ago. And um, Anand put incredible work into this opening, right? Um, it's, it's pretty much what won him the match against Kramnik, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, he had ammo left over <laughs> throughout his career in this opening. Um, all right, my number nine. First game where I risk 
Jesse's disapproval is uh, Nidich Carlson. Um, I I don't think anyone else w- would have this in their top ten other than me. It's my personal taste. Um, but you I kept trying. You didn't send us this game, right? Because I thought I opened all the games that you. I didn't send it to you. That's good. We don't have to look at it. Night is Carlson. I think I did. No, I mean, like like in the list, you didn't (laughs) include it in the original list. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Originally, it was in my top 10 because I was trying to like do a better job of like the best games, not just like my favorite games. But like I, I felt like this one, maybe it's not good enough. Maybe it's not good enough. Maybe someone has a reason to say it's not good enough. But I just couldn't. I just couldn't get over it, so I went with what I wanted in the end. Um, this game here, Carlson was a kid. He was maybe 16, maybe 15. I mean, this is a really early Car- Carlson game. Probably 15. It was from 2006, and he would have turned 16 in November, right? So odds are he was 15 when he played this game. It's a game where he goes and grabs what seems like a semi-poison pawn and not in the sense that he'll lose but in the sense that white can then perpetual his queen by chasing her around with rooks back and forth and then magnus just sacks a piece to trade queens instead of taking the repetition uh he does repeat twice you know i don't know if that was him just being professional or if he was hesitating over the choice he repeats twice and then he just sacks a piece and goes into this end game and uh just grinds down the night um with his with his pawns and uh it also <laughs> gives me flashbacks to Spassky Fisher game 13 because <laughs> he's got this pawn on a2 and then finally breaks through on the king side as well and it's like this kind of really intense end game um yeah don't think you're going to find many other 15-year-olds grinding like that. It's an amazing game. I love it. Okay. Okay. And then um, I, I'm on the snake now. You're on the snake. So unless anyone has any insults to interpolate, we'll continue. <laughs> I'm going to call this game... Karpov Kasparov Knight to D3 because if you put a year like you say Karpov Kasparov 1985 it's like well yeah dude which of 40 games right so um so Karpov Kasparov the Knight D3 game I think there's a decent chance that one of you will will talk about it later so my two cents on this game is that it's amazing um there are a couple games I was also tempted by a by a game in the same-ish variation where Kasparov manages to get all of Karpov's pieces on the first rank at move 17, you know, and then trades queens to give a checkmate. I think that game's <laughs> insane yeah. as well. But it's it's mind-boggling. There are a couple games where Kasparov completely, like, corrals all of Karpov's pieces and just leaves him abject on his own first rank. And it's like... no. It's just mind-boggling how you can do how how it could be done to someone so good. The construction is insane, and I will add that this game has a very attractive and non-trivial finish to it. Right, like it's one thing to to hold the guy down with your knight on d3 and your pawn on b4, um, but the finish is something that could have been botched. You know, it's it's complicated and it's attractive. 
Nice. So it gets extra points for that. All right, cool, cool, cool. Um, I think we'll we'll probably see that game later. Jesse, your move. My moves. Do I do two now or just one? Just one. Just one. You're in the middle. <laughs> in the middle. Okay. This game. By the way, I just say. Uh, I picked games really that spoke to me at various points in my life that I'd seen them multiple times. So this is Korshnoi, Kasparov, 1982. Kasparov's really a kid at this point. They led him on the Olympiad team. Korshnoi is, of course, defected. And uh, a lot of pressure for Kasparov just simply not to lose. Kasparov plays. It is all the K.A. Cajonas. People don't like it when I talk about the ball. But this game, <laughs> this game has got the ball right here, my friends. And uh, just to put a little bit of perspective, this game is so complicated, it's Benoni. And Shankovich did an annotation briefly thereafter. It was a deep annotation. And it was pre-computer era, right? And then it's like, you know, people don't really complain too much about annotations. There's kind of like a revolt. And it was like an annotation war then happened to like get to the truth of what went down in the game. And it was so deep that like, now nowadays, like you would instantly be over. Like someone would be like, well, Stockfish says blah, blah, blah. No, yeah. it was like a deep debate about what the F was going on in that game. And when you look at it without the computer, it's still like, oh my gosh, what is going down in this game? Yeah. So this game was a, has a meme quality to it, also hugely historical. Uh, significance with kind of like the end of because Korshnoi, of course, was battling Karpov. This is the end, the signaling the end of that rivalry in the beginning of the Kasparov Karpov rivalry. Mm -hmm. Fantastic choice, Jesse. Oh my gosh, what a game! And also bringing up analysis battles, which were one of the greatest things that chess used to have. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. What a game. I wanted to put it on my list too. One of my favorites. Uh, Kostya. All right. Um, Hail the snake. My number eight pick um, is going to be another uh, more recent game from 2017. Uh, this game made a huge impression on, <coughs> I think, everyone that saw it uh, at the time. You know, we're in the era of the. Uh, the Twitter and the Reddit and, and the Facebook, you know, the Chess 24 days. So when someone plays an amazing game, it gets shared, you know, widely and uh, everyone sees it. Um, this is the game played in uh, the Chinese Chess League between Jin Shi Bai and Ding Liren. Um, I'd argue that this is uh, maybe Ding Liren's greatest game ever. Uh, for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's uh, Ding Liren is on the black side of a Queen's Gambit declined. He finds a very kind of thematic, but very, very interesting queen sacrifice. Where he sacrifices a queen for, I think, a rook. And a piece. And a piece, right? Um, and then what follows is just this insane king hunt, uh, numerous like incredible attacking moves from Ding Liren, where he offers his rook multiple times as a sacrifice. Basically, the game plays out like an endgame study, but in the middle game of the board, with White's king just getting chased around ends in this uh, incredible like minor piece checkmate it's just a work of art it's just an absolute work of art um and uh yeah i think we'll be we'll be remembered for a long time um yeah. shall i move yeah, on the fine the the combinations are just beautiful the complications yeah 
Absolutely. Good one, Kostya. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully no one's upset that I've, uh, I've included this game. Um, folks, if you're upset that we left out certain games, you then have to tell us which games you would personally <laughs> you would personally remove from each of our lists. Um, okay, not just which games to add, but which games to remove. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. You can't just be like, "Oh, how did you leave out these games?" And then it's like, you know, top fifteen now. Um, next up, my number seven, um, super famous game. Very memorable once you see it. It's uh, the kind of immortal King Walk, Short Timon, 1991. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you could definitely Google it. Uh, I'm sure there's tons, tons of videos out there showing it. Um, what I really like about this game is not just like the immortal King Walk at the end, like that's super cool. Um, I also think just the way the middle game was played was very impressive. Um, and there's a lot of very interesting decisions. Short just like dominates the D file, plays on the dark squares, just like a positional masterpiece through and through. And then of course has this uh, fantastic finish. Um, a bit of a Fisher effect with Short. You know, he's not he's not the greatest guy. Uh, he's not the greatest guy. But it was a good game, so I got to give him credit for that. But uh, yeah. Wait, you're still mad person. at him for blocking Dojo Joe on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could uh, you could say that. Um, so anyway, hopefully it gets canceled sometime soon. I don't know when that will be, but hopefully soon. It's definitely overdue. Um, but anyway, you know, I wanted to be objective with the uh, with the list. Uh, <laughs> number, number six is or number seven from uh, I think Jesse's up next. Oh, I'm up next. Okay, so. Um... Also, so you know, I called it the Woody Allen effect. Has been then been referred to as the Fisher effect. <laughs> and so, a guy for me that I was upset with as a fan was Topolov. And maybe I shouldn't have had such an attitude about it, but mm -hmm. I was really upset during. Then people forget about this, but it was the famous toilet gate. And I just oh, and he had this ridiculous manager was making all these accusations. It was totally dumb. It was very upsetting. Yeah. People now forget about it because other gates have come <laughs> come and gone since this one. Anyways, I put Topolov on this list. This is Topolov Ronin. Let me just say something briefly about the game. So at the uh, beginning of the last list, at a couple games featuring what was called the, the Fisher Endgame, Rook and Bishop against Rook and Knight. And um, one of the things that's interesting about Topolov is Topolov mastered a different kind of exchange sacrifice. So the same reason you have Bishop and uh, Knight, Bishop and Rook, excuse me, as being a powerful combination is they do different things. And it's been long known that if you sack the exchange, you want to keep the Rook. Topolov pioneered a bunch of situations where, in fact, you give up the Rook. And it's just like Bishop against Rook. And most people are like, what, boss? You can't do that. And Topolov really pushed it to a new level. And one of the things interesting for me to think about is like, well, we had the Fisher Endgame, but that wasn't named. It wasn't named as the pioneering idea that it was uh, for decades later. And the players of the successive, uh, the like the generations right after it, really didn't get it either. Either understanding as a as an abstract concept, they didn't have a word for it, and also then it's even harder to learn how to do it. I feel similar is going on with Topolov in the exchange sacrifice. Dude took it to a whole new level, 
And I don't think people <laughs> really brought it. I don't think it's really penetrated the consciousness is exactly how deep it was. That game, Topolov Aronian, really highlights like, <laughs> like what the dude was on about, taking it to a whole new level. So that's number seven for me. Nice. Yeah, an interesting thing. In, in, an interesting thing that I noticed, Jesse, is in a lot of those exchange sacrifices of his, it's not so much, it's not necessarily that he even has a short-term advantage. He's willing to just trade pieces and even go to the end game down his exchange, right? This is a game where like early on he offers a queen trade that Aronian backs off from, right? And so you're saying like, Wait, so you're telling me you can simply win this endgame with a bishop and an advanced pass pawn against a rook? Like, you know, so there's like a whole different level of, you know, he's like, I'm taking no risk. I've got full positional compensation. Yeah. Uh, we have a question, Jesse, from Amy. Why the rook is given more material value than the bishop anyway? Why is it a big deal to play with the bishop versus the rook? Because the bishop is like a blind lady. She's only tapping one field of squares and the other one. She's like, what? Can't see it, man. Can't see it. I'm lost. Yeah. So that's it, Space Amy. Like half the squares the bishop can't touch. So if you put something on one of those squares, it's it's immune and safe. And that's that's a pretty significant limitation yeah. for the bishop. All right. My number seven. And Kostya. You, you you know what to do. Um, this is Kramnik against Shirov. And I put this game in here in full knowledge that this game is not like computer sound or anything like that. But one thing this game has is it's just it it goes beyond any human's ability to compute, right? So a computer may figure it out and may say that. The game wasn't sound on Shirov's part. I wait, 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 wait. Take no, no. no I don't. Jesse, you gotta what's put wrong? In the, you got to put in the the year and Kosti has to the stop. Year? The year. Yeah. I think it's 1994. I'm not 100 percent sure on the years. I'm not. I'm not a like. Oh yeah, Lenaris 1994 round seven kind of person. That's that's not me. That's um, me. Are you doing me? <laughs> oh, do you know all that stuff, Kostya? I, I, it helps. It helps. You know, you want to know. Like, I'm sure it does. Know. I just don't know it. That's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Um. Okay. So this game, it's unsound, but to me, this is like the fire on board game. This is the next level of Mikhail Tall. This is the just absolute crazy. What is going on? What world are we in? The guy is just outposting his rook on a square attacked by a pawn instead of you know, if it were a piece, it would be the the Petrosian exchange sack, right? One of the Petrosian exchange sacks that he taught us. But he's just plunking the rook where a pawn's attacking it. He's already down a piece. He's attacking with, uh, you could say, an economy of force or a, a, a lack of force where few other people would think that you were even attacking anymore, right? And he plays rookie four twice this game. Meanwhile... Karpov calculates that the variations are very complicated if he takes the rook and he like queens the B pawn while he's attacking. So he's sacking his rook twice. He's letting a pawn queen. The variations are insane. And in this case, um, they didn't have an argument, but more like a collaboration in a sense. But he and Kramnik had to trade analysis after the game to figure out what was going on. Like Shirov 
post analysis saying, I think this was, you know, not quite sound. And then Kramnik post analysis saying, here's what I was afraid of. This, this does look pretty scary. No. And then Shira was like, oh yeah, like there was one idea there, which I, which I hadn't seen during the game. And, and that is complicated. And, um, it's, a, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, this is one of the most explosive games of chess, um, ever played. And, uh, I haven't put a ton of, explosive games on my past lists right a bit more end games and and struggles but but i do love a good explosion and this is one of the greatest of all time nice yeah that that game is like a personal favorite for me i remember playing through it when i was reading fire on board as like a 21 2200 player and i was just yeah <laughs> mind yeah. is completely completely blown yeah, really especially if you're not in the Mikhail Tal school, like if that's not your sensei and your chess isn't just a bunch of insane open Sicilians from from your childhood, then to see this, you're like, no, like they can't actually be two of the best players in the world playing like this with each other. It's just that's that can't be. Yeah, absolutely. No, the fact that right, it was like you know, an unsound, I'm quoting for the audio listeners, the fact that it was an unsound sacrifice to me, it's just like, that's kind of just cool, you know, it still works at just the absolute highest levels. It shows how, how difficult the game is, how difficult it is to just deal with a raging attack monster. Okay, David, yeah. you're number six. Oh, right. Let me keep going. Okay, and this game, this game's amazing. So <laughs> Jesse and Kostya both said something that I'm not going to fully agree with, which is that um, which is that Magnus Carlsen's games don't lend themselves to brilliancy, right? It's not quite what I said. Um, but go on. What's that? <laughs> it's not quite what I said. I mean, go on, go on. They're brilliant. Okay, it's sorry. Just, you know, we got 10 spots. Yeah, but you guys said there's something about his his style and his approach that doesn't lend itself to the kind of like slam bang kind of uh you know competing with these games where a king runs across the board under fire or somebody sacks three rooks or whatever it might be right right um maybe there's a greater degree of control in some of his games but i think that if you look through uh the Carlson oeuvre, you will find a number of uh, slam dunks uh, interspersed. And the dude definitely knows the initiative intimately. I mean, as well as or better than anyone else in the world, even though he's not always down a rook. Well, in this game, he is down a rook, guys. <laughs> so he shows what he can dish. This game is absolutely uh, beautiful. Um it is uh wait where is it Kostya? no we're not looking at it boss oh yeah um, Jesse right, right. sent me a death threat off screen so i we're just gonna Jesus. wait for the top Jesse, <laughs> calm down we're gonna have time for the top five boss that no, was no, our but this... we gotta stick to the we gotta... Fine. <laughs> i rank this game fifth i'll rank this game fifth let's show it Kostya. i'm ranking it fifth <laughs> we'll get to it there it is fifth place carlson Ferruja. All right, we'll get to it. We'll get to it, Bob. What's your sixth <sighs> pick? No, I was just going to then move it to sixth and say I'd changed my mind after he showed it. Um, okay, 
So you guys know this famous Mikhail Tall versus uh, Polugayevsky versus Mikhail Tall game? Oh my god! Uh-huh. Yeah, the the semi Tarash game where he sort of introduces the idea of playing d5, e takes d5, e5. Then the bishop on b7 is stuck, and White's created like a fake uh, French defense space advantage on the king side to attack from. And now this is like a standard thing that's been elaborated and elaborated. But in this game here, Carlson takes it to a whole other level. And to me, this game encapsulates encapsulates both Polgaevsky Tal and the Fisher Spassky game that we ranked so highly because he creates this kind of weird positional domination. He sacks first the, the D pawn on D5, and then he goes E5 and sacks the E pawn on E6 as well. Then he occupies the D4 and E5 squares with his pieces. He's got Nimzovich in there too. Kicks the black pieces back. He's down two pawns, right? Just playing with his pieces. He's got nothing but the pawns in front of his king left, right? No pass pawn anywhere. Like no way to win the game other than by somehow turning his beautiful pieces into an attack, which he then does and delivers a beautiful uh, murderous checkmate as well. Um... This game, whew, man, if you haven't seen it, go out and see it right now. Yeah, it is uh, It is a very, very well-played game. Absolutely. like, It's a genius game. It's absolutely genius. Yeah. That's the other thing about it, the genius part, right? So, like, in on the one hand, it's encapsulating or reworking things that Carlson has learned from the people who came before him. But on the other hand, one of the things you're looking for in these best games it's something that's like new or fresh or that you don't quite believe, right? When someone plays a move and you're like, that move can't be good, and then it is good, right? That gets you a lot of points on the on the top 10 best games of all time, right? So when you see Carlson give both pawns, you're like, yeah, you may have positional compensation, you might not lose, but it doesn't look like he's just straight up killing somebody. I defy anyone to say, oh, I was playing through this and I thought obviously black was going to lose. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Let me just say something obvious. We don't have any repeats so far, and <laughs> it's going to go like this. So it's, yeah, it's a totally different kind of list than what we had before. All right, Kosi, you up next here, buddy? I think I think you're next. You're the middle. You are, I'm Jesse. Next. And then do I go twice? Nope. nope. You're the middle of the snake today. I'm the middle of the snake. Okay, so this is going to be Kasparov, Karpov, and this is game... 20 to Rui, just maybe jar the memories. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this is 1990. Way. Um, so the, one of the things about this list is interesting, just, just in terms of thing about Kasparov games, is I'm not, I have strong feeling that the games I'm listing as Kasparov's best games might not be the ones he would list. Um, Though I know, of course, he likes this game, but the um, the thing about it for me in a lot of these games is, did I appreciate something new in addition to seeing? The, w- one of the things about when I say meme quality about certain classic games is they became a meme because people like saw something in them that they hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. People like me, and I'm like, oh right. And this game still, to a certain extent, is beyond me. But the thing that I will say that uh it taught me is along with the, some of the other there's another Kasparov game i'm gonna actually show later but that really taught me is the idea of 
force count in the attack and splitting the board in the attack. And I'll talk a little bit more with the uh, later game, but that's what this game does for me, kind of announces a new era. And at the time, I didn't get it. I just did not get it. It was beyond me. Um, so it's something I've come to appreciate with time. And I will say there's a great old video that you, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube with Plasket and Kasparov's talking about this game. Very poorly produced, but the explanations that Kasparov gives, amazing. Okay, there it is. Oh, yeah, I know the videos that you're talking about. Yeah. Old quality videos. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great amazing, game. Amazing game. That's a great game. That's a game where he starts the attack and then takes a beat to play King H two, right? That's his big King H two game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The attacking prophylaxis. Um, all right, my number six is um, actually uh, ironically uh, a Carlson game as well. <laughs> uh, but, but I, I believe this is my only, pretty sure it's my only Carlson game on the list. Mm -hmm. um, this was played in 2013 in the candidates tournament that he ended up winning in very dramatic style to end up challenging Vishyanon for the world championship. Um, and this is his win against Gelfan from that tournament. I think he beat Gelfan twice there with both white and black. This is his win as white. The game with black was also very, very interesting. But this game as white in particular, um, I just found it like... I remember watching it at the time and thinking, Gelfand's like such a solid player. You know, Magnus is great. Magnus is Magnus, but he can't like outplay Gelfand in this position. Just such a, like a dry position. But um, then Magnus ends up just converting this just like beautiful like middle game squeeze and ends with a very nice end game where he like sacrifices his bishop, gets past pawns. The whole game is just like this incredible symphony. And I think Magnus's genius is that he honestly like he kind of makes it look like. Oh, anyone could do it. Like any strong player could have played that game. Um, and maybe as like an individual game, there are certainly other players that could. But it's like he does this stuff so consistently and like all the time. I feel like for me, this game kind of represents his um, his true touch. Um, as far as I remember, yeah. I remember being like very close to like being engine perfect, which is not like a huge huge criteria, but for me it is if the game is not going to be like super flashy or like incredible. So the fact that he just has this like insane machine precision, uh, precision lots of like little tactics and stuff, um, just makes it uh, fantastic. And of course it was just played in this super, super important tournament, which which for me does, does matter. Yeah. I mean, this game is incredible. Uh, I really struggled with with whether to have it on my list or not. Um, but I think it, it shows, it's one example that Carlson's calculation skills are insane, actually, even though a lot of it's hidden underneath the surface, you know, what people need to realize when, when playing through this game and actually I'll just, I'll just send it in, in chat since, since Jesse's not letting people see the games, um, <laughs> <Is this> gatekeeping? <laughs> Yeah, since he's gatekeeping and only wants people who know these games by heart already to know what we're talking about. Um, is like there's this moment where he just he first he identifies and that's the Magnus intuition and, you know, the Mozart quality or whatever. He identifies that he needs to deal with the bishop on C6, right? That it's on this great square protected by a pawn covering everything. He, he like he can't do anything in this game as long as that bishop's on C6. 
But it looks like if he plays b4, you know, he's going to get refuted by this knight h5 uh, tactic. And he calculates all the way to that queen a5 trick, right? And he says, I can play b4. You know, I can leave my stuff hanging to the opponent's tactic. And the opponent looking at the tactic still thinks it works and plays it against him, right? That's how, you know, sick the, the surprise of it is. Um, because it's very rare for people to be calculating that in that version of like seeing what your opponent might do and what you can do against it and taking into account all their resources. So, you know, what he sees coming in advance um, and the taking into account of what the opponent wants to do beyond what anyone else does when they calculate. Most people calculate, you know, me first, me first, what I'm trying to do. It's that's just an insane moment. And if anyone studies that moment in the game where he plays B4, That'll really teach you what Magnus is about. Okay. Well put. Um, now, I was the bad boy. I was the bad man. But now we can actually see the games. And we now have a little bit of time because I forced these chumps <laughs> to say their words in a little bit more of a concise fashion. Was I completely successful? No. A little bit of water snuck into the boat. How we gonna progress? All right, yeah, that was the warm up. Now the real show will start. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so I'll go with my with my number five pick. Um, this is uh, another game that was played in an extremely important event, um, arguably a harder event to play in compared to the candidates. Um, because this was played in an Olympiad, where you not only have the pressure of playing a super strong player, but you also have the pressure of not wanting to uh, lose a brilliant game, you know, or lose in the process of trying to, to, win, to win brilliantly. Um, so for me, my number five best game uh, post-1972 is the game Gelfin Nakamura, I think 2010. And this is, I'm gonna bring it up uh, in just a second here. This is one of Nakamura's greatest uh, Kings Indian wins, perhaps his greatest. Um, this game for me also represents some of Hikaru's other wins. Like he's literally beaten like everyone in the Kings Indian in brilliant style, Kramnik, Anand, like Belyovsky, like so many, so many amazing games that he's played. But this is the one that like really, I think has always made an impression on me and I'm sure on others as well. Um, it should be mentioned, he plays this against Gelfand, who's just like a straight up, you know, he was, always considered just an absolute expert on the white side uh, of the King's Indian uh, positions. And here, Naka, oh, excuse me, here's the board. We get a King's Indian. It's the classic Mardal Plata position. And um, Naka makes this like counterintuitive D take C5 move, which is now kind of thematic. Um, it seems like white is just crashing through on the queen side. Black is throwing everything on the king side as usual. Um, but of course, the the real fun of the game starts with this move, knight takes g2. This uh, kind of thematic sacrifice, black wants to bring the rook to g7 and eventually mate the white king. There's bishop h3 stuff. Um, Gelfand goes d takes c7 in between move. And then here comes Naka's just like, just insane combination. Knight takes e1, leaving the queen hanging because he's got g2 mate. Um, and then he leaves this queen hanging for just an unreasonable amount, just a disgusting amount of moves. So it takes, he goes g2 check, 
Rook G7. Okay, it's a check. It's a check. Fine. King H1. Bishop H3 <laughs> keeps going. The same mate on G2. Bishop F1. And then just like this immortal move, Queen D. I mean, like, <laughs> it's not enough. You know, just like Queen D3 trying to. Finally moves her away from that pawn in order to <laughs> hang her elsewhere. Just hanging on the D3 square and just um, pretty much uh, explode like a firework in, in White's position. Um, the knight takes e5 is played. Bishop takes f1, another another queen sack. The queen is still <laughs> hanging. Takes, and then finally we uh, end up in this middle game. I remember playing through this game. I was like, uh, what's even the material count after all this? Like, what happened? It turns out he ends up, like, up a full rook. Like, he, he won a lot of material in that exchange. He wins the knight. And then the game ends here with Naka um, up a piece in a final position. So just an amazing game. But, like, what really takes the cake for me is that he played this, like, you know, an Olympiad, like he's playing board one of the U.S. team against Israel. Like, I mean, if he loses this game, right, it could be just crucial, crucial. For, it would, would be crucial for the match. But it, to, yeah, play such a game under such circumstances, I think, takes a lot of gusto. Okay. That's, that's I guess it. I want to say just one thing that is interesting to me about that game is that so uh, Naka in the 2000s, and I played him a bunch in the 2000s, it's important to see, like, everybody recognized that he was the greatest American talent since forever. But the kid wasn't really working on his game and not improving in any kind of systematic way. And like the late 2000s, especially, it just seemed like he was stuck. It was this game. And then the next couple years where we were like, oh, maybe dude can make it to the top 10. And so it was a very interesting period of years. And it's really interesting to look back now from this perspective, because honestly, we talk a lot about the chess dojo, the training program, about people working at their chest. Nak has never really worked at his chest. <laughs> He's never really worked that. He did some work, though, at various times in his life. But what's so weird is like, okay, so from this period on, 2010, he makes a good run of it. And then we have this whole thing where he stops playing. And now he's not doing any work, as far as I can tell, other than streaming. And now he's playing good chess again. So it's like it, it he, he destroys, like, the standard narratives of how you improve a chess for me, right? Especially with, like, and even as a kid, like, we were all, like, looking at his just askance at the blitz he was playing. Like, he would just play a gazillion games of blitz, you know, and bullet. You know, and it was just like the guy, anyways, so fascinating story. It begins though, his like, where we saw like maybe he could be a contender was this game. Yep. Alrighty. All right, your fifth game, Jesse. All right, here we go, number five. Oh, where's our beautiful list? My number five is Ivanchuk Yusupov, Ooh. 1991. A rapid game. Game no, it's not a rapid game. That's just what chess games says. Oh, wasn't? So, yeah, chess games ruins a lot of things where they call things rapid games. This was a candidates match. And um yeah, back in the day the, we used to have the playoff, these, but go on, go on. They had the candidates matches and it was just this amazing thing where I wish we could bring it back, my friends, but we cannot. They won't let us we <laughs> cancel the candidate matches. It really was like the test. A candidate's match. And then you would play the real match if you made it through all these different people that you had to face. 
Okay. This was also a battle of analysis. I'll run through this. And um, for ages, people have debated this game without the computer. I have never actually turned the computer on here. Um, but in addition to the tactics we're about to see, it was a teaching moment for me of the power of this kind of this kind of play for black. Okay, so here we go, knight of eight. By the way, at this point, um, Ivanchuk, arguably, if you had asked people in 1991 who is the most talented player ever, many people would have just said Ivanchuk. That's who we were talking about at that point. All right, here we go, knight g4. White continues on. Got to bust him up. Pop, pop. This game, dude. Good move. <laughs> Good move, 95. All right, now we have a debate. What is happening? No one knows. It feels, if I was white here, I'd believe in my position. Guaranteed, I believe in my position here. But what about the force, Jesse? The force or the force count? The force count. The pawn on E3 splitting the board. <laughs> the number then, of white pieces. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I would not know entirely. But here also, we've seen so many positions where mate doesn't happen because the bishop on G2 controls the business, right? Yeah. So there it is. I would, I would yeah, look at this. <laughs> I would believe in it. Okay, so here we go. It looks like white's winning. Rook E6. We're coming to G6, my friends. We're coming. <laughs> I said we're coming to G6. We're coming yeah. to G6. He doesn't have time to save the other rook because the queen will come over to F7, right? So he just says, whatever. Take it with check. The threat is queen H1, knight H2, king E1, rook G1, mate. That's why white is like, all right, take my queen, Bob's. Mm, it's getting nasty. It's getting totally nasty here. The threat is knight h3. Bishop takes h3, queen h1. You do not know how to... You can't do this without the Polgar mates, my friend. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't do it. Still, knight h3 is the threat. What are you supposed to do? What I love about this game is that, like, if Ivanchik had somehow won it, it would also just be, like, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> like... It would just be a brilliant like defensive effort from from the white side if you managed to uh, to get out of this one yeah and obviously i went through it pretty quick you can spend months analyzing this thing months yeah so there it is game number five for me bravo yeah. no that's that's a great one that's a really good one um there was a lot of ivancha games suggested for our list and they, just a few games he had that are just absolutely brilliant. Didn't make it for me, but uh, on this, unfortunately, he's on the wrong side of, of that one. Uh, okay, on to David. All right, <clears throat> number five. All right. Kasparov, Kramnik, Astana. While he's doing that, I just want to say, we have yet to have one game in common. Yeah. <laughs> one. We had by this point in the other lists, we had many, many, many games in common. All right. So um 
obviously, I would have liked to see a Kasparov Kramnik rematch. Not the, you know, one year later automatic clause that Botvinnik used or abused, depending on your perspective. But more like I would have liked there to have been some way for Kasparov to come back through a candidate cycle, play some matches against people, and then get a, get another shot at Kramnik. Um, would have been great to see if uh, with more time to sort of recover and prepare and, and, and adjust if he could have um, if he could have beaten the younger uh, champion in a rematch. I don't know what the result would have been. I think it, it's a very interesting question. I would have loved to see it. Instead, all we got is this beat down here um, at a tournament where he comes armed to the teeth and uh, beats the Berlin Wall for, you know, maybe the first and last time in history. <laughs> People haven't done great against it. But um, but actually, I was watching a match recently where someone managed to... Oh, yeah, I think it was Shanklin against Robson. They played like a, like a six-game match at the American Cup. And Shanklin managed to push Robson off of playing the Berlin, which I haven't seen anybody, like... You know what I mean? Like, have somebody play something against you good enough that you're like, oh, I can't play the Berlin endgame against this guy. I've not seen that in 20 years ever since Kramnik ruined chess. I mean, brought it to a new level. <laughs> I'm kidding. The Berlin Wall's fine, you know. I've got no problem with it. Um, and, and I love that Kramnik advanced chess. Um, but you don't often see White putting a dent in this thing. And this game here is a heck of a game. We're allowed to show it. Let's show it. Um, so, Cozy, you can just jump to move 12. We don't need anything before that. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. All right. So, um, yeah. So, Kasparov masses up the pieces in the center. Kramnik's king is, uh, you know in the middle but there's no queen and here's where Kasparov unleashes a beautiful idea e6 beautiful clearance sacrifice if there were queens on the board you might even call it obvious but it's not obvious here i mean now it is now that he showed it to us but you know i mean i think Kramnik didn't see the move coming and you know if Kramnik doesn't see the move coming in the Berlin endgame, we've got to say it's a pretty cool idea. And then, yeah, follows up with knight d4, f5, just increasing the pressure. The threats on g7 force the rook onto h7. Bishop f6, if you take it, you're smothered mated. He pushes him off of the d file for a moment. And then he cashes back in for the pawn that he sacked. There's a lot of work to be done in this endgame, boys. A lot of work. And in fact, you, you know, analysts and computer people and whatever would just say, oh, whatever, Kramnik could have drawn this endgame eventually for everything Kasparov did. This endgame was still holdable. Sometimes you have to be a genius just to get a slight edge, and then you have to grind them down. You guys know me. It just makes me enjoy the game even more that there was no knockout and that he had to play a long endgame and uh, work it out. And uh, in general, I will just note to people that knight against two pawns in the endgame is not necessarily always an advantage. There's a lot of endgames where two pawns are worth a knight. A lot of endgames where it can go either way. 
So, um, yeah, that's an exciting game for me. Made a big impression. No queen sacks, but uh, but that's high quality chess. I love it. Yeah, it's like the redemption game for Kasparov. He like finally, because people were saying like, oh, he's being stubborn during the match. He sort of switch away from one e four, trying to like crack the Berlin Wall. And he's like, nope, yeah. I'm gonna keep, <laughs> yeah. keep ramming it, and then finally broke through. Alrighty, um, David, let's do your number four. All right, number four. All right, here I've got, um, let's see what the year is, 94 as well. Another Kasparov game. Now, I believe that Kasparov had an ungodly record against Shirov of something like 15 wins and zero losses and some draws. Uh, so... <laughs> So there's an element to this, perhaps, of like he could do whatever he wanted to the guy, and the guy was already just beat down anytime he had to face Gary. But maybe, maybe this is this game's fairly early on. Maybe this game is the reason why the rest of their career went, <laughs> their career head to head went the way it did. Um, if you could just jump us to move 10 of the Sveshnikov, we can go through a few of these moves. This game actually, Kasparov cost me a game because I tried to repeat this idea against somebody and I didn't I didn't get it right and just lost a game in 20 moves one of the worst losses of my life um so it didn't work out but okay here's the position the Sveshnikov they're fighting over the e4 and d5 squares and uh Kasparov just gives up that rook the funky rook on b4 he sacks it plays b4 now let me just let me just preview what this game is about this game is about trading advantages from one to another, which for many people is one of the hardest things to do, right? So Gary Kasparov was a dynamic player. A lot of people think of him as an aggressive player, right? Like he's always pushing and attacking or whatever. But he's a he's also a dynamic player. And what dynamic means is just being willing to make all these changes all the time, which can be very disorienting and confusing for yourself as well as for the opponent. So one of the first ideas of that sack was to put the pawn on B4, and have the knight on b7 basically be trapped, right? Just just like sack and exchange, but then b4 and the poor knight on b7 with the pawn on d6, it's dead, right? It's like that famous Spanish knight that gets stuck on a5 and then has to reroute through b7 and d8. But then there's so many different phases of it, right? When black plays a5, you know, he just lets black trade and open up their their rooks. Often when someone plays b5 when they're up in exchange, you I mean, plays a5 when up in exchange, you would pass it with b5 and try and keep the position locked up and better for your outposted knights compared to the rooks. He transitions to it being a pass pawn. Then he transitions to a, to an attack um, and makes several changes. Even in his attack, he first threatens to checkmate the black king by bringing his queen into d7 and sort of attacking from the center of the board towards the back rank checkmate. And then he switches his queen to h7 and chases the black king out into the center and checkmates it in the center. So um, for me, this game, the way it's all connected and tight, there's never like the 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 line of the game, the narrative is taught the entire time. And yet the number of times that it switches uh, is sort of the most important thing that I learned from Kasparov. 
even though I lost a game, I must have won some other games at some point in different openings, uh, thanks to what I learned in this game. Yeah, that's a great game, man. Yeah, the rook takes b7. Amazing. Really amazing move. Yeah. Kasparov, so good. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, no, amazing game. Definitely a game I wanted to include. Wasn't able to quite rank it above everything for me, but yeah, it, it's really a, a masterpiece through and through. Let me just say something on a point of Jesse's that we have no overlaps. I mean, our rankings might be meaningless if there's zero. I mean, our combined rankings might be meaningless if there's no uh -huh. overlaps at all, right? Like, it'll just be kind of yeah. random. I mean, it'll just, just be the games that end up. I know there's at least we'll one. There'll be some overlap. There'll be a little bit. Okay. <laughs> there's at okay. least one. <laughs> okay. Take it away, Jesse. Okay. So, my next game is um i don't know if people know about this game this is brodsky kramnik 1991 mm -hmm. and this game destroys me uh do i understand this game not necessarily yeah <laughs> maybe not um <clears throat> let me just say something briefly about kramnik kramnik in his later years kind of lost the thread i think a lot of players when they kind of get towards retirement they lose the thread you can talk about why that is also it's got to be said i think that if Kramnik hadn't had health problems, a little bit unclear even to him maybe what the health problems were, but I just want to say, if not, I'm pretty sure he would have made the top 10 lists of ours that we did a couple weeks ago. All right, here we go. We're going to look at this from Black. This is the true uh, Sicilian that Kramnik played back in the day. Uh-oh. So another Shvestnikov. Shvestnikov strikes back. Take that, Kasparov Shirov. Well, if you put in Kasparov Kramnik in the Sveshnikov, you'll see which side wins. <laughs> um, Kramnik was a master at this Sveshnikov. You look back at those early games, pre-computer games, really amazing chess. This is just, of course, one of them. You guys oh, know the one with both queens hanging and then Kasparov plays h5? That's a no. Sveshnikov. I, I don't know. I'll have to see it. Could, could have been on the top 10 list as well. Anyway. Go on, Other historical Sorry. detail, actually, interesting about this game. Uh, this was played in Kherson in Ukraine, 1991, different time. So um, F4, and I can imagine believing in White's position here. You know, he's got it together. <laughs> Things don't look so bad. What's going on with Black's king? What's the rook doing? Okay, so here we go. First super aggressive move at a, this at a higher level here with knight d4. Okay, White says it's all about the f5 square. That's what he understands. Okay, it's about the f5 square. Rook f2. Do I understand it? It's pretty deep, my friends. Pop. Yeah, the, rook, the rook was attacked. It had to do something. <laughs> <laughs> so the bishop there is going to has the only virtue is it has to be part of some kind of attack. So here we go. Pop. Pop. The knight on a3 is poor, so it makes a lot of sense to play knight takes b5. Yeah. Okay. Deep breath. Bishop h6. Dang. Mm -hmm. These guys need to learn how to not hang their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. White fights back. He's like, I don't care. I don't care, Baus. Rook hg1. A, b. 
check to the miserable king. You can have my rook boss, it's okay. And now I guess we're gonna have to say white's lost. There's a yeah, lot. The, the bishop at h6 is now better than any of the rooks. Check to the miserable king, pop. And I guess I want to say, I went over this game a little quickly, but there was like beginning, I mean, we could begin a lot of different places, but this move. Yeah. I've studied this game and I feel like with all these variations, I came to understand the reasons behind them, <laughs> but it was like, oh, I realized that I would never be able to do this in a real game. This is yeah, the next. Can you just show the, the point gesture? I think, I think queen takes h6, it's mm -hmm. rook takes c2, right? So the queen on h5 is covering the e2 square, which now is unguarded. Yeah. And then if um, if knight takes, we have knight b3. Oh baby, someone did their pole guard mates. I don't think I would. <laughs> I don't think I would notice the whisper of bishop h6 even in that position, much less plan on it or count on it or incorporate oh. it into my game. I don't know that move when when I played through the game it blew my mind. And I think one okay so one of the things about these early Shevchenkovs games that turns us on to a different side of Kremlin is that uh, able to play kind of I guess you could say learning from Kasparov where we say um, okay <laughs> I trust in the dynamic possibilities in my position. I trust that I'm gonna find something, mm -hmm. right? And um, it's amazing when you look at both, Kramnik didn't play that many games in the style, but you look at Kasparov, didn't lose that many games, which very surprising because dude really was pushing it at a variety of levels. You think he would have tripped sometimes, didn't trip that many times. There's very few Kasparov losses. And anyways, this game, Kramnik shows also why Kasparov thought this kid was the next coming, and he was. He was. Yeah. Uh, could have been, I think, Kramnik, as I said, I think missed some of his ultimate uh, potential. All right, that's me, number four. Yeah, Okay. beautiful. Um, yeah, yeah, sick, absolutely sick game. Um, all right, so for number four, I've got another kind of modern classic. Um, if people have seen this game before, it's really hard to forget it. Um, that's the game, Morozevich MVL, 2009. Um, yeah, I remember this game, it just like, it made such a huge impression on me. I think it's like just one of the most complicated games uh, of all time, just like, uh, period. Let me get it on the board here real quick. Um, what's actually kind of interesting about this game, start playing through it. Okay, MVL is a well-known Nidorf specialist. Even back in 2009, he was he was doing his thing. And uh, Morozevich, of course, incredible legend in his own right. Uh, very very fearsome attacking player. And it, when I saw this game at first, I don't think I was watching it live, but I remember like thinking, okay, this is a game where White wins. <laughs> it's like e5 knight e6. <laughs> Like, why is just yeah. sacrificing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, classic 
Karis Kotov, like, why wins this game? It's just, that's just how it works. Um, yeah. And for me, what, what is interesting is that why was winning this game? He is winning. It, like, this attack is... You weren't wrong, Kostya. You weren't wrong. Decisive. <laughs> <laughs> right. But MVL manages to survive the attack, um, which, let me just say, is like a brilliant effort from, from Morozevich. He goes G6, he like locks Black's King in on G8. It's like very Alpha Zero style. Um, yeah. Waits down a piece here, but has huge positional compensation. Um, but he just like not able to to finish it off. And then I don't think there was ever anything like an easy easy knockout or anything. Um, and here I feel is Rook H seven. Like, oh man, you got to have a sense of humor, I think, to play this move. But but it's actually very strong. He's creating a square for his king, so he doesn't get mated on the light squares. And um, MVL is now up a rook and a full piece. So of course he's willing to give back the rook in order to, to save his king and uh, uh, defend against the attack. And I think even here, like uh, white is still winning, but it was just not easy. It was never, never easy. What ends up happening is black ends up creating counterplay. He just survives with this nine on F8, rook on H7 uh, defensive duo. King goes to H8. And eventually MVL is able to create counterplay. He starts chasing White's King around. Um, Moro has to get some solace uh, or tries for some solace in the endgame. Doesn't happen. Eventually Black uh, wins a Rook here and ends up with a extra Rook and piece. <laughs> sort of extra Rook. Definitely <laughs> extra piece. <laughs> extra piece. And then we get this endgame, which is just like, yeah, the icing on the cake um, where... He just can't get his rook out. Like he's, he can't save uh, the rook. It's, uh, it's just wild. Um, like he can give the knight, but then the king will still be, will be stuck. So he gives the knight on h7, takes king f7, finally saves the rook like this. But then what's so cool is like even this position is like not that simple to win. It's not that trivial with the extra right. rook. Because white has this h7 pawn. You can't leave the back rank. You can't and white could have gone. Ahead, White could have gone bishop e6 to g8, right, Kostya? And then the mm. rook would have been trapped in there for sure. And that's also very, very tricky, like how black ever breaks that position. Right. You would have to then, like, yeah, convert this right? one. <laughs> yeah, you go in and kill the h pawn, and then you can win with your h pawn, but without ever using your rook. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it takes him, like, 20, 20 moves or so, but he eventually figures out how to uh, kind of continue stalemating or zugzwagging, uh, zugzwagging, zugzwagging White's King. Um, and eventually, I love this G5 breakthrough just to get his bishop on the diagonal. And um, yeah, eventually ends up winning. Yeah, he's got the rook. The he's rook. got the rook. Now it's uh, force mate. King E7, rook B8. So yeah, just like sick, sick game. I mean... I think, uh, yeah. yeah, I think Pologievsky would trade his entire career for this one game. <laughs> <laughs> like, so. I don't know. I don't know. Let's see another Pologievsky game, and then we'll decide. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but that game there, I will say one thing about it, Kostya. The phase where, where he finally counterattacks, right, with queen b2 and a5 and, like, breaking with b3 to open up the counterattack against white's king, I tried to calculate that and understand it you know post fact right just analyze and i i can't even with all the time in the world i can't calculate the relevant lines yeah 
and I mean, okay, I'm sure the players, you know, didn't see everything either, but it's like, uh, yeah, I think they the level of play here, given the complexity of this game, is just, like, insane. Um, and it takes two to tango, so, like, huge credit to Morozevich for just being, like, an absolute monster himself. Um, yeah. All right, let's keep it going. We've got half an hour left. Uh, my third game on the list, my top... My, Top three, um, definitely a game that made an impression on me when I was a lot younger. I feel like I, I learned a lot personally from this game, and um, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be on everyone's list, but I, I think it's it's an incredible game through and through. Uh, this is the game Lotier Shirov from nineteen ninety the year 91 i think it's 91 maybe 1993 mm -hmm. um let me oh 1990 excuse me this was played in the manila interzonal so kind of important like qualification tournament for the candidates um and yeah let me start playing through this game uh, basically, I feel like this is a yeah masterpiece from Shurov, um easily one of his one of his best games for me what I love about this game is that essentially it's like it's it's like a movie in three parts. Um, we get this King's Indian. Sure, goes B five, gets some queenside counterplay. First of all, he makes a number of let's just call them incorrect strategic decisions. Incorrect in quotes because I think they're actually quite genius. All right, first he goes B five. He goes E F six. Doubles his pawns rather than uh, taking yeah. back with the bishop. And CB5, he goes, Rook takes B5. So just leaving himself with this, like, isolated with pawn. With the isolated pawn. <laughs> like, what? He's like, well, I got to activate my Rook. That's just, that's how, that's how things work. Uh, he goes, G5. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> so D5, 97, 94. Okay, here, I think he already had this in mind when he went B5, Rook takes B5. Um, this moment here, he goes, Rook takes B5. He better up, because if his plan was Rook B8, that was a really <laughs> dumb plan. <laughs> not have showed up on this list <laughs> it was rook takes d5 this is the first part of the story yeah sacrifices the exchange okay light squares he gets a pawn i think nowadays this would be not too hard to um to understand but let me ask you one question here Kosti, and maybe it's too much to ask you can always decline but what if lotier had played g4 there to try and contain the dark squared bishop and the light squares no rook d5 is fine Instead of playing knight f5. Yeah. G4. Yeah, I don't know. Do you know have any insight into what Shirov was thinking? It's uh, It's been a while. My guess would be some kind of uh, f5 push. <laughs> yeah, black has a lot of options here. The, the default would be knight e7 followed by f5. Mm -hmm. But I think there's other ideas too. Maybe rookie 8. Yeah. Rookie 8. H5 is also a thought. Yeah, no, my understanding is that his sacrifices in this game are are sound. Um, like, he's not just, yeah, trying to make a mess of the board, but I feel like he has, he gets just full compensation through and through. Um, Why well, goes knight f5, like, forcing off the trade of knights at the cost of a pawn, yeah. but to activate his rooks. But it's like, it's the pawn and the light squares. Like, from this point, it was really clear to me that black, you know, once that light square bishop gets loose, 
and we know that black will always be able to play f5 and activate the other bishop here it's like clear to me but it's it's that moment where Lotier could have played g4 that i really think is a big question for the game oh gotcha um okay so rook e8 rook c1 f5 rook d2 and rook takes e3 part part two part two of the movie he's already sacked one exchange for the light squares and he sacks the second exchange to ruin white's kingside structure Get an unopposed dark sword bishop as well. So now he's, um, yeah, playing Topolov style. Just two bishops versus two rooks. And uh, very, very huge pressure here from black. And then the third phase. Bishop takes g3. He takes here. And uh, takes here. White gives this check. Takes. And so this was all, I think, planned out by Shirov. He had this exact position in mind. So he's now given up his two exchanges to end up in a position... We're just down a rook, <laughs> but, but he's winning. He's winning because he's got the active queen and these three massive pawns um, are ready to start setting up meeting ideas against white's king. So queen d5 uses the king, of course, because he, he's a great endgame player, f5, and white resigned here um, in view of takes, check, and then winning the queen. Um, so yeah, for me, this is just like such an incredible incredible game i think i'm a little biased in favor of it you know it could easily be elsewhere on the list but yeah had to had to include it yeah i mean from sheer it's an insane conception all the way through to like and to me from an artistic perspective the idea that at the end it's not a checkmating attack or something but he's going to win by mobbing a rook with pawns in the end game i love that that's tons and tons of points for me but for me, there's some questions about Lotier's play in the game. And the, the second question after my G4 question is, when Shirov plays bishop e5, it seems really clear to me that he's threatening bishop takes g3. And then Lotier just walks straight into it with rook h1, right? Yeah. Um, now, I'm not saying that white's position is good, right? But I would say that, you know, rook g1 or something or the rooks defending each other so queen e3 won't win a rook like rook c to c2 or d to c2 but i think rook g1 stopping the threat i mean you gotta at least stop the threat boss like you gotta you gotta know that Shirov's threatening bishop g3 i okay I mean, but wait, wait, wait let me thought. let me make a defense about it though yeah let me take defense. so maybe he missed something but also if you go back and you say to yourself if i do not play rook h1 what am I going to do? Rook H1 is the one threat that White has at his disposal. Go back another two moves. Mm -hmm. First of all, you can't play bishop e5 because of queen e5. So black has to take this full tempo out. The only way for White, when you think about this, is like, well, if he, if he plays bishop e5, I better have something or else I'm going to be squeezed to death. So that's your one hope. That's the only hope. Because you're, otherwise you're not doing anything. I mean, it's not guaranteed you're going to be squeezed to death. Black's got a lot of play, but I mean... You're gonna get squeezed to death. I got, I got everything. I got uh, H5, H4. I got F4. Holy patolis! Holy patolis! Yeah, I, mean, I think in practice, it's not that easy to push the rooks over. I understand you can hold the position. The bishops uh, are great, but I mean, it's you don't need to roll the, over as white. By the way, dog. By the way, like I don't think this is easy to see. Like I would, if I if I was in the previous position as white. And I saw this, I'd be like, well, I'm going to take this, Bows. <laughs> I'm going to take this. By the way, no king h3 because of g4. Right. Right. Uh, 
this is hectic. Oh, man. No, I wouldn't. If I saw this, I would believe in white or I'd believe I wouldn't believe I was toast. Okay. Right? I, I got mean, a rook, it, boss. I got it, a rook. It looks ter <laughs> it looks terrifying for white. I got a me. rook. <laughs> like each of those pawns is an attacker because they're within one step of the king, right? So it's I got a rook though, man. The other position I was like, maybe I'm gone. <laughs> I would play rook h1, dude, even knowing this. I would be like, it's time. I gotta do something. That's what Latia was thinking during yeah. during the game. I got a rook. I got a rook. <laughs> I got two of them. <laughs> um, okay. okay, that's, oh, that's a great three. game though. That's a great game, man. Yeah. And um, okay, let's let's keep it going. Yeah. Is it me? It's you, Jesse. All right. This game uh, made a huge impression on me. And um, again, I don't think Kasparov would say this was his greatest, maybe not his greatest games, but to me, this game just said it all and really taught me a lot about chess. Um, so this is Kasparov Portish, 1983. When I say pawns aren't people, in some way, this is one of the games, the foundational games of my chess belief system, I guess you could call it. Ooh, we're gonna, finally gonna find out. <laughs> I the doubt. meaning and background. <laughs> the meaning and background of Fonz are people. Okay. Jesse so. was just mad in advance when he came up with that saying because he knew that one day Philidor was going to make it onto a list of top players. <laughs> so it was just pure spite. Pawns aren't. I people. have nothing. Not to, I have no problem with saying that the pawns are the soul of chess. It's just they're not the people. You oh. need a soul without being the people. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's start the game here. This, uh, of course, is a, a, an attacking formation that, that Kasparov got very good at. And knight c6 makes a lot of sense from an old school perspective because the knight is going to want to go to a5. In fact, once you play knight c6, you are committed to go to a5 to play for the c4 square. The problem, and this is where it gets really interesting, the problem with knight c6 and knight a5 is that then we have to start thinking about the force count. So we're going to see a lot of, because the knight will not be on the king side or in the center. I predicted that whole sentence in my head. I'm happy to report. Okay. So now we're going to get a really interesting sequence. So bishop b2, rook c8, queen e2, and Kasparov already has the pawn formation in mind. So rook a d1, queen c7. Now, Back in the day, the dogma in this position would have been e4. There's a nice video out there. Again, it's the Plaskett one where he talks about e4 versus c4. c4 is all about pawns aren't people. So when you play c4, then you're saying, oh, <laughs> the knight's coming to a5, boss. What are you doing? And so really beautiful decision. We're going to see a lot of beautiful things later, but this move, to me is the first like double X glam where already it's kind of like the fundamental plan is laid out. Okay, so here we go. Black plays naturally. Portish, if you don't, if you're just new to chess, genius player from back in the day, fantastic player. Okay, so here we go. Now point two, pop. It is a problem, my friends. <laughs> it is a real problem. All right, we could analyze knight c4 in depth. Let's start just with the game. So pop, 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 
Okay, now this position you could say to yourself, and black, you're like, well, I, I'm going to get the C4 square, you know. Uh, yes, my king's a little lonely, but I got the C4 square, I got the C file, my bishop's controlling the G5 stuff, I'm fine. So he backs up. But C4 just doesn't matter anymore. There's nothing there, boss. Oh, it no, it matters. If we give black time, it will matter. So, um, all right. This next move, yeah, d destroyed my conception of chess. And not only that, but then when you hear Kasparov talking about it, it's like, oh, he was actually able to calculate a vast distance from this point. Okay, so here we go. Pop. Screw it, dog. Screw it. King g7, and now knight e5. So two of the fundamental ideas that Kasparov turned me on to were force count and the splitting of the board. So here we're going to see the splitting of the board. And what that means is by splitting the board, it will be difficult for the pieces on the queen side to come to the king side. And to me, when I like when I imagine myself doing some attack, the kind of just placement move of 95 would be hard for me to believe in. We're also blocking the rook. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next sequence is actually kind of forced. And I would have a real hard time understanding why it was forced. Um, again, I could go, maybe I will do a video on this at some point, but Kasparov saw all of this when he played bishop g7. So queen h5, f, excuse me, f5, f6, check to the miserable king, and now black has to take the knight. And now you say to yourself, well, it's black, well, maybe I'm alive. No, boss, because you're, the board is split. Check to the miserable king. We're coming around, and it's actually lost. Did it take me a while to understand that it's lost? It did. Is it like if I saw that knight, I'd be like, I'm not sure. That's <laughs> for sure, though, boss. Yeah. And then it's over. Yeah, fantastic game. Again, I will, I will say, I don't know. I'm pretty sure Kasparov wouldn't say this was of, of his top game. But for me, it was a stunner. And it just turned me on to how to think about chess in general, especially attacking chess. Yeah, sick game. No, just classic. <sighs> classic. We still don't have a repeat. No repeats yet. <laughs> no repeats. And you're not going to get one now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so somebody said that Paul Gajewski would trade all his games for that Shirov game, but what about this one? <laughs> Paul Gajewski. Tori. <laughs> no, I know this game. This is a good game. This is a good game. Hey, boss. What about this one? All Take right. it away, boss. <laughs> All right, I'm trying to click on it, but I can't seem to. Kostya has now. Let's see if I can move forward or backward. Nope. Oh, wait, wait. Go ahead, go ahead. Now you can. All right. Interesting. I felt like I had even less control than normal of the classroom. <laughs> All right. So, insane opening. This is obviously pre-chessable and pre-stockfish and all that, but... Um, for anybody who doesn't know Lev Polgayevsky, dude was working on his openings all the time. 
he was like he was like one of the original opening heads right one of the original people to just and he did it in a notebook by hand right but he had 30 moves prepared out um and this game here i believe was opening prep the famous tall game also um that some people complained on youtube we didn't include last time because that was played before 1972 um so this is like a bonkers variation, obviously. Um, it's been the site of many insane and crazy games. I don't know if either of you considered the uh, the Ivanchuk Shirov Queen G7 game at all uh, this past week. But um, this, this position is bonkers, and it has produced, unsurprisingly, many bonkers games because the tension is so high and the, the advantages and disadvantages are so stark of the of the two players that normal logic can kind of get tossed out right like in that um like in that Morozevich MVL game that valuating the value of the rook on h8 or h7 is hard to do right mm -hmm. okay so here the idea from white is well okay if you let black just win the pawn back on d5 then your position is pretty much trash because black center is 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 good well i mean trash might be strong but you don't want to just give that pawn so the idea is you sack the rook on h1 to put your pawn on e7 but um Polgayevsky had a new idea in mind for this uh, for this position here if the bishop saves itself by the way knight b5 and then you're sort of checkmating the king so black has to take time for a6 and he came up with this idea of h4 bishop h6 and then just f4. And he just leaves that rook stuck on h8 in a pretty big space, right? It's not as obvious that that is a tomb. It's more of a mausoleum. But the rook is still fairly stuck. And that's the concept. Now, one of the things that makes it complicated is black has some resources for getting the rook out of there, right? One resource is if you could trade white's rook, your king could come to d7. This rook doesn't look as dead trapped as uh, as MVLs did, in my opinion. The second way to try and break it out is for this knight on b6 to sack itself somewhere on white's pawn structure. And you could break out the rook, right? If you could get this knight to take on h4 or on g5 or on e7, there's many ways. So, um, I mean, Jesse's concept from Kasparov of splitting the board, Lev needs to keep this knight away from his kingside pawns. Otherwise, he'll be down in exchange and maybe a not good enough version of this. There were three games that I considered this week that have this similar theme, right? Um, two of them have MVL, and there's that um, there's a game where MVL is the one trapping his opponent's pieces on the kingside. Against Ding. In, in the, against Ding in the advanced Caro. And to me, all three of these games kind of come together, right? They're like a theme. They would go in the same chapter of a of a book on on chess dynamism, right? They would be in the same chapter, uh, sort of splitting the board, locking away pieces as compensation for significant sacrifices. Okay, so this is very nice. This move here, oh man, 
Um, the night trade is really favorable for Polgayevsky because it would clarify matters. There would no longer be a piece that could break the black rook out from h8, right? So um, Torre keeps the knight, and this lets Polgayevsky send his knight on a much better route towards e3 and possibly f5 or c4. So that was a sweet move. Now we can see the pure pawn trap on the rook. The knight takes its chance to come sack on the structure. The king gets out. And this is what makes this, what pushes this game over the edge and up into the top echelons of games is like, if you saw this position, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily think that white should play for this, would you? I mean, yeah, it's not obvious. the rook's not trapped anymore. You've got a pawn for an exchange, but it's a knight in an end game. You'll much more often see people play end game positions with a bishop and one or two pawns against a rook than a, than a knight. But he's got these weaknesses, right? A6, C5, F7, and the potential of the H pawn to become good. And uh, at first he ties black to that weakness on F7, then he gets his knight going, then he takes the time to grab the A pawn once his pieces are maximized, keeps black tied down. And this endgame gets hairy as well like the uh the calculations it gets it gets tense here the knight's living precariously black finally deflects him comes back has to keep the king away from the pawns and then do a breakthrough black can't trade because then the bishop will control the queening square but this is this is intricate right here's the surprising counterplay from torre Going from back rank mate. Okay, you run away from back rank mate. We queen the pawn. But um, yeah, the bishop's just going to be able to sack for it, and he'll get some queens. What do you think, Jesse? That was a good game, and there's a lot of games in this variation. Um, test of time, Kasparov has a couple of games. They tried to beat him with this variation. Uh, they were like ganged up on him and he slayed him. I think it was 1982 Soviet championship. So right, right after this. Um, yeah, fascinating early position without the computer where I think this blew everybody's mind, this variation. You know, it just was yeah. so dynamic and interesting. Yeah. And Paul Gajewski had some incredible contributions. Like he came up with, this is like a concept, right? I mean, he came up with concepts that were just, mind-blowing so all love to lev um i guess it's on me to go on to number two yeah let's keep going which will be our first uh repeat Ooh. so costa you can go to the bagirov gufeld game the bagirov gufeld dog wow. <laughs> the mona lisa <laughs> we get to see it we get to see the mona we lisa. get to number see it two. i know jesse held back Dang. before Goofeld, and costa huh? you'll You'll enjoy showing it because it's a King's Indian. I know I know you're not one to complain, but especially not. <laughs> um, not yeah, for this can I, I just let me uh yeah. yeah. Put it you can be the one to show it if you want. You probably like the game even more than me, but I no, I just wanted to say that like um Gufeld, he was always known for rather um for for wanting to rather give up a rook than his dark sword bishop. That was like the famous yeah. thing about him. Um, but in his Mona Lisa, he actually lets his bishop. So the whole thing happens without the dark square bishop. Which right. Was, Norm, normally he would play something like bishop h8, bishop f8, queen f8 or something. That would be yeah, like his, <laughs> his obsession. 
Yeah, oh, exactly. there was that story that I read recently. It was like a Petrosian game, and and uh, he didn't go for some line with Bishop G5, right? And then he was like, I saw that if I had played Bishop G5, you would have been able to play Rook F4 a move later, and then eventually force me to eat the, the Rook with my Bishop. He was like, I, I wasn't falling for Bishop G5, boss. And his opponent was like, I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Here's a heck of a, a move coming this bishop e6. Yeah. So just a fantastic attack. Oh. Oh. It looks like he's trying to get his own king checkmated on e6 and f6 on the diagonals, right? <laughs> but he's clearing the the eighth rank for his queen. And that's really cool. White plays bishop b3, so the rook will get in the way of the queen from checkmating, right? And then he just feeds him the rook anyway with knight b4. Yeah, this is so sick. Yeah, I think white resigned here, but... Beautiful geometry. Black is this, like, ring around the rosy, mate, which is just... So ring pretty. around the rosy. And the key is the knight and the bishop, right? Like, the bishop and knight checkmate will help you to find Gufeld's combination here. Because the knight has to cover the dark squares and the queen has to cover the light squares, right? And he had to position the knight on this precarious d5 square. It's the only way to do it. So learn your bishop and knight checkmate, folks, and you can play the Mona Lisa too one day. I, I just want to do one detail. King h8, exclam. So that, because queen h6, we have knight g8. So the only way to get in is to play hg, but then our rook gets to go to f7. Amazing. King h8, exclam. Beautiful. And now white has to also worry about maybe black might play g5 at any moment, killing the attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. That was, I, I didn't think you were... <laughs> you always surprise me, bro. You always surprise me. Okay. That means this one's going to get a lot of points. It's the first repeat. The it's the first repeat. really go up there. And, and I can say that normally... That normally I don't value King's Indian defense games as highly as other people, I think. Like, normally I find them a little bit crass. Like, the F5, F4 is a little bit too obvious. And, like, you know, you throw all your stuff at somebody. And, you know, it's it's a little feeling like like anybody in a coffee house could have done it. But, uh, but this game was special. Yeah. Okay. Kostas, you, you're up, right? Uh, I think it's you, Jesse. Oh, it's me. Okay, number, number two. two. It's very hard, very hard. Um, so, again, a Topolov game, and again, a Shirov game. We're going for Topolov-Shirov, 1998. And um, this game is generally known for, like, the best move of all time. It's kind of an interesting... Maybe that's... Uh, obviously, we're going to have to do that show. I would like to... <laughs> that's debatable, that Jesse. Best moves of all time. <laughs> Best moves of all time. And let me just want to, I don't want to spend too much time, but we're going to see the greatest move of all time. I think actually there's consensus that this is the greatest move of all time. Oh, no consensus, my friend. Oh, I think there's, I mean, well, David, you're not part of any consensus. <laughs> we'll have to, we'll have to argue no about consensus. it when, uh, when the time comes. But what I want to stress about this game is I want us to pay attention to the light squares. So, 
uh, Topolov lets us basically win the light squares there. So the, the rest of the narrative I want to just stress is the light squares. Because when, people often just look at the move, but there's a history to the move as it's going to happen. So you can imagine Topolov believing in this position. Um, and this just like, it, when we usually see Shirov attacking. Here we're seeing the, the incredible defense. I don't care. I don't care. And boss, what I'd really like is your light squares. Okay. Ooh. Now we won the light squares. We're going to control the light squares, my friends. Okay. Somewhere around this point, Topolov wisely says, boss, this isn't going my way. Yeah. So what I'm going to try to do, boss, is I'm going to try to go to a end game where I have bishops of opposite color, namely this one. Yeah. I mean, that position looked impregnable, right? After he took the light squared bishop and, and the f5 square collapsed. And then it, it, I mean, good players are, one of the things that they're way above us on is knowing when to, to start looking for drawing scenarios, when to, to turn to sack a pawn or two. And yeah. Right. So that's why, like, it's like, okay, that's that phase one. Okay, let's and we'll call phase two this next little bit. Shiroff, by the way, an amazing endgame player. An yeah. amazing endgame player. All right. So the, this is the first one where Shiroff says, if you take the queens, I feel good about my position. Okay. So queen a1, no trade for you, buddy. Bishop f5. F6. Pop, pop. I'll take it again. I'll go into this endgame, boss. I'll go it in. All right. So common wisdom would be that white has reasonable chances to hold this thing. Mm -hmm. Jesse, if there were no kingside pawns, what would the verdict be with no kingside pawns? Uh, totally drawn. Yeah. Okay. The problem, though, with the f6 pawn, let's say, is that, and this is central to what happens, the f6 pawn is the, it's tying down the black king. All right, so keep that in mind when we look at what happens. And here with h4, black, white is saying, boss, I'm tying down the g5 opportunity. I'm tying down you from putting your pawns in the right color. Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, this move is the greatest move of all time. No, there's there's actually no doubt that this is the greatest move there's of all no. time. I, I've studied this game in some day depth and this one is like what and i think it's i'm i haven't learned the computer but from what i could tell it was the only move that actually won here we go pop that's true i i will say jesse i've yeah. also studied it and i think yeah. it's the only move that wins in this position i'll just yeah. throw in my two cents on that i think that's correct so you tie down the white king if he doesn't take and obviously the question is uh, what does he takes then we have three connected passers but then, Mike, it's all about the, the, the speed of the king. The, the fact that I get the king to e4. Oh, man. Yeah. Devastating. And then white resigns. So this could be, hey, I could have put it in other spots, too. <clears throat> but I want to say when you connect it with the previous narrative of the light squares, it makes a really nice aesthetic impression on me. Plus... The greatest move of all time. <laughs> We're going to do a show, my friends. We're going to do a show. 
All right, that's it for me for number two. All right, we're gonna find on that one because that is a great move, obviously. But uh, I don't think I don't think it's the best of all time. Okay. Um, yeah. But in but but I do agree that this game belongs more on a list of best moves of all time than best games of all time. Oh wow 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 wow. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Those uh, knows all has a nice point too. Okay. Go ahead, Kosia. Um, all right. So number number two. Yeah, for me that Tabal Shurigan, yeah, like amazing in-game, but right, hard to say that through and through. It was uh like uh, the greatest game. But obviously, I mean, such a such an in-game, it's um yeah, just fantastic. Um, okay, my number two game is a repeat of David's um, eighth pick, Kasparov, Karp of Kasparov, the 93 mm. octopus game. Yeah, I thought one of you might like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've, uh, yeah, always loved this game. I think um, many people have, have seen it, of course. It's known um, for, let me bring up the board here. It's known for this very creative pawn sacrifice that Kasparov apparently came up with um, in his blindfolded analysis on a plane while he was traveling. He thought, hey, what if I sack this D-pawn in this uh, hedgehog-style position that Karpov is super, super strong at? And um, the point of his play is not to win back the pawn, but to just establish this incredibly powerful knight on D3 that Kasparov would later dub the octopus because it controls eight squares, like most knights do, but it happens <laughs> to be uh, eight like super important squares. And the knight just completely cramps uh, White's entire position, doesn't let him fight for the E-file, doesn't let him fight for the C-file. Basically, this one piece just completely dominates um, Karpov's camp. And uh, yeah, I mean, the game, I think, is extremely well played. It's just a phenomenal example of the power of the, the positional sacrifice um, and just, yeah, ends up in like total strategic domination um, with at one point Karpov having like a full set of pieces like on the board, but just like almost almost no, no good moves. Um, and then, okay, final combination here. And um, Black ends up uh, ends up winning this and takes takes um and actually yeah, i remember when kaspar was analyzing this game he said just one of the, the funniest things ever because in this position rookie two is actually made in two it's just like uh you're gonna be mate next move is oh actually wait white still has uh you don't play rookie two boss oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm getting the the position wrong um it was here rookie two this would have this would have just ended the game um, right away. But Kasparov is like, all right, when you see force mate in four with checks, you're just done. So <laughs> you don't look for anything stronger. So check, check, uh -huh. rookie one, and now the game is is all over. Um, so yeah, Immortal game, of course, happened in a world championship match, which which gives it a ton of a ton of prestige. And uh, yeah, that's my that's my number two. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when we talk about uh, best books of all time, I just want to give a shout out to this book. Did not make my list, but it came out kind of recently. I think it was published ages ago in Russia, but it was finally translated. Coaching Kasparov 
by Nikitin. Nikitin was Kasparov's coach. Talks about this game and others. Really beautiful, in, insightful into the process and what went down and everything. Uh, so I, that book, by the way, has been really resonating with me. Uh, just I think about it often, which is not the case with every book I read. Okay, David. Oh, wait. Um, it's st it's still on Kostya, but oh, yeah. I I would just quickly say. Oh, I'm sorry, you, sorry, sorry. You guys could have picked almost any games from the Karpov Kasparov match, and I would have nodded. <laughs> <laughs> those those matches were fantastic, unbelievable level. Alrighty, so my number one game. Um, I mean, this is interesting because we're either gonna have the same game in our number one spot, or uh, one or both of you guys has left out. Uh, very, very good game. We might have the same Spoiler game. alert, Kostya. I left it out. Oh, no. Wow. All right. So um, I, I made this point last time. I feel like it's so hard to choose this list. It's even harder to choose a number one game because you have to be willing to say that this game is number one ahead of all others. And that's very difficult to do, right? Because you're, you're, you're cutting down a lot of games. But one game has to take that spot. For me, one of the few games that's worthy of this role, of course, the famous, uh, I think people call it Kasparov's Immortal, Kasparov Topalov from White Konze, 1999. Um, very well-known game. I think a lot of people have this one as their, as their favorite. And that's part of the, the draw for me is that many, many strong players, grandmasters name this one as like their favorite game ever, what they think is the greatest game of all time. And so for me, that definitely adds to the value that just so many players um, and fans and so on recognize the uh, the brilliance of this game. Um, I won't go into it into too much detail because I think many people have, have seen it, of course. But essentially, this is kind of a famous double rook sack game. Um, starts off with uh, this Pirates middle game. And the fun, of course, happens after both sides castle queen side. A little bit unusual, but then the uh, the attack and the tactics in this game are just uh, out of this world. So here we go, knight d5, opening um, the e-file up. That goes queen d6, rook takes d4, first rook sack, looking to win a pawn. If uh, takes um, as played, rook e7 check was the follow-up. Now if this one is taken, then white goes queen d4, queen b6. And knight comes to c6, and it's uh, it's game over. So this one, he has to ignore, but now takes. And what we get is just this like absolute epic, very uh, epic king walk slash attack. Uh, Rook a7 here, takes this one to get queen b3 mate. And um, yeah, ends up with black's king just walking all over white's queen side. Um, bishop f1, just another like, oof, sick, sick move, um, hoping to distract the queen away from c2. Rook d2, rook d7, I mean, just every game is, every move here is just like a double, double exclam move. Finally finishes with this endgame with the queen versus rook where uh, Kasparov is able to, to nicely convert. Um, so yeah, it's hard to add on, I mean, the game just speaks for itself, like it's just such an incredible game. Um, so yeah, for me, it had to be number one. It just had to, there was no other option. <laughs> All right. 
I'll say I'm gonna just I'll jump in. So that was also my number one pick. And um I will say oh, wow. this that that game it's when it happened and then for many of the years after, even now, it's it's beyond me. It's beyond me. I I can kind of appreciate it as a fan, but it is it is beyond me. And I think that's one of the reasons that it fascinates so many people. It is a little disappointing to me as a person, as a fan, that it is beyond me. <laughs> okay. But it, I just want to put out is yeah, put it at the top, but it's weird for me to put it at the top just because it is beyond my comprehension. There's a lot of games, obviously, I could never play. Uh, I don't think I would ever play Bishop H3, for example. But uh, I understand Bishop H3. I can analyze it out. This one was like, oh, I don't get it, boss. <laughs> You're killing me. All right, David, what is it? Philidor game? Buddy, Philidor <laughs> from the grave? Do you guys want me to say anything about this Kasparov game and why I didn't put it in the top 10? Or should I just, uh, we just talk about the game I like? see your Philidor game, boss. We just uh, want to see I'm just bracing myself. All right. Mm. <laughs> no, this is an amazing game. This is an incredible game. Okay. The greatest game of all time <laughs> was played by uh, Gregory Serper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had the pleasure of playing and talking with him, too. Yeah, me too. All right, boss, walk us through it. I'm not trolling, Dripman. I had planned to troll. I, I, I searched my database. I'll tell you guys this. I put in a lot of work. I had planned to troll. I searched my database for a game where Jesse Cry got beat down. I tried to find a game. <laughs> I tried to find a game where someone really laid into him. You know, sacked the house, dragged his king around like what just happened to Topolov. And I couldn't find a single game. Every game was solid. You you only lost in end games, as far as I could tell, and never to Bishop H three. So I gave up on that project. It was it just yeah. It was a waste of time. Could not find a game where you got popped. I could show you uh, games that I got popped. But yeah. all right, let's see this one, boss. Yeah. So anyway. So this is not a troll. This is my real. This is my real pick here. Um, well, you haven't like actually said the game. You said Serper, and that's it. What do you mean, Serper Nicolaitis? Yeah, you didn't like say it. Like, oh, sorry, I typed it into the thing. I forgot about the podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Serper versus Nicolaitis. And it's a uh, King's Indian, sameish variation with F3, which those of you on the podcast will now not be able to see either. Sorry. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, fan fantastic. Best, best game you guys are going to see today. Um, so he plays this move C5, which is a weird move. This whole system for white. Let me say this. Cause they talked about, you know, Jesse talked about things that we can or can't understand and like that we want to understand and pushing us. You know, I think I understand Kasparov Topolov. That's part of why it might not be on my list. And Serper Nicolaitis, I do not understand why White's playing F3, Knight on G3, C4, C5. I don't understand how he sets the stage for this game. I know how Kasparov set the stage for the Topolov game by accident. <laughs> it was just a lucky accident that the tactics came into play for him. Okay, but C5, it's a slightly weird move. 
Um, I, I, I can't explain it. I mean, his position's fine, but so is Black's. H4, knight on H1. Yeah, I don't play like this. I never play with a knight on H1. But um, what he shows here, in a sense, is space. And Jesse once wanted us to have a game in the, uh, or maybe it wasn't Jesse, but but one of you two wanted a game in our dojo curriculum called Space the Final Final Frontier. Oh, yeah, that's for me, yeah. Right, that was you, right? And to me, Jesse, this game here is kind of a space game, right? Like, he's about to show what the C5 pawn is worth okay. in this position, right? So he loosens up the queen side just a tad, just increasing the scope of E to a tiny bit, right? And then, boom! Welcomes him to the dojo. Knight D5, and that C5 pawn, woo! Holy moly. You're going to be dealing with that for a while, Ioannis. C5, D5, immediately disrupting the pair. You know, I would look at moves like Rook C1, Rook Fe1. No, no, no. He's he's coming forward because he's got a tactic in mind, a concrete solution. Bishop B5. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Takes, takes. Of course, the queen can retreat to B7 and keep the rook, right? Then it's just three connected pass pawns coming down. And this is now all like mayhem, right? But... I think also that it's all sound and it's based on, you know, the value of the pawns and the space dominating black gets the rook in here, brings the rook to the other file. Not because he's afraid of the rook on a dying, you know, just because it's an open file for rook a one F four trapping his bishop, right? Sure. Yeah. Everything's hanging. Whatever comes here. And now pop. Bishop on e3, you know, it's it's going to go too, but the rook goes first, and now centralization. Right? Centralization. The queen comes in, the light squares are suddenly weak. He's coming across. He's giving up two pieces with check. Poor king. Just barely alive. And uh, can't, can't take back on f2. Has to leave that pawn alive, which creates this... Theme for black of knight g3, pawn takes hg3, and rook h1. He has to keep his eye out for. Now, even this position, what do you do? You're down two pieces. Oh, man. Check to the miserable king. Yep. All just to get out of the way of the d pawn, right? He's sacking a rook for one tempo for this pawn. Now he's down a rook and two minor pieces, folks, if you're keeping track. Now, in this position, black's got enough, right? And they've got counterplay with the F-pawn. So here comes the E-pawn. And look at this. His queen is just its just sitting there. It's hanging. Black's going for counterplay. He's pushing. Going to have to go sack his queen for this rook if he wants to win. He does. Imagine he didn't win this game. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oof. Even now, you know, still not totally obvious. Pop! Breaks up the pieces. The party's almost over. Watch out for knight f4. Watch out for knight f4. King e1 still the only winning move. And resignation. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, David, you're gonna, you're probably going to get some hate 
for this pick for your number one. But I think it's an, it's an incredible game. I mean, it's absolutely it's absolutely epic. Uh, 100% I considered this game. For me, it's just like, okay, it wasn't played at such um, at the highest of stakes, right? So that was kind of important for my sensibilities. Yeah. Like world championship, candidate. Like the more important the tournament is, I think the harder it is to play a brilliant game. But I mean... Yeah, I understand from a sportsman's perspective, there is that that element. But from a pure artist's perspective, you know, people like Gufeld wandering around the world, you never know when you're going to when inspiration is going to strike. It could be a blitz game in the Café de la Régence where, you know, or you could be at waiting for an opera to end or to start and suddenly, you know, the muse sings in you. So, okay. Um, yeah, I mean that's a game with many, many phases. Like, like an ogre has layers. That game has several phases, incredible tension, and I think it really teaches us something about some of these. Some of these tactical games are a little bit sort of irrational. People sometimes say I wouldn't necessarily say irrational, but they're not rational. Like they're not. They're not, you can't say, oh, it's because, you know, the opponent played A3 that, you know, Black was able to sack three pieces on their king side 20 moves later, right? But this game, I think, really teaches us some fundamental strategy with the way he uses the C5 pawn and that strength in the center to start the, the cavalcade. And once he's got the power of the past pawns, he can do all kinds of stuff stemming from that power and that potential he has in the center as the pawns come down. So, um... Yeah, I think we I think we've got like a real interesting strategic deep chess truth coming through in the middle of all the craziness. Yeah. Oh, let's do the tally. Um right. I don't think that's going to be necessary cuz we have we have three games. <laughs> we have three games um yeah. that more than one person selected. So yeah. um in third place we've got Bagirov Gufeld. Um, second place, Kaspar uh, Karp of Kasparov, the 93 octopus game. Okay, fair enough, yeah. And and first place, Kasparov to Polov, because we, we gave it a two number, yeah. number one. So, yeah, great job, us. Uh, 30 games on this list, three repeats. <laughs> um, we knew it was going to be tough. We knew it was going to be impossible. Um, so I'm glad we didn't disappoint on that. But, uh, yeah. Uh, well, so on Sunday, folks, on the next episode, um, we're going to rank them all. We've now done three shows. We ranked yeah, games pre-1920, we ranked mm -hmm. games 1920, 1972. Uh, these are post-1972 rankings, and now we're just going to see how all the games stack up uh, against each other. Stop.